If you want to turn with me in your Bible, we're going to be looking today at Psalm 130. Psalm 130, you'll find that on page 624 of the Pew Bible. This is Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. Therefore, you are feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I put my hope. My soul waits for the Lord. More than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord. For with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. Amen. Um, if you want to keep that open in front of you, uh, we're going to take a look at what this psalm has to say. And as we edge ever closer to, to 2019, I wonder what words pop into your head when you think about the future. We live in an increasingly uncertain times. We've now been without a government in this country for 713 days. There is a website that you can go onto. Literally all it is is a counter. It just says 713. If you're one of those people that just likes to panic about things, you might want to just have that in your browser. Keep account of that. We've seen in the last few weeks that everyone seems to be as confused as ever about this thing called Brexit. What that actually means. What a good one is. What a bad one is. And throughout the world, it seems increasingly extreme people with increasingly extreme views are finding their ways into powerful positions. One word I've been hearing more and more lately is this word, hopeless. It's all a bit hopeless. The future seems increasingly hopeless. I feel hopeless. I wonder, do you feel a bit like that this morning? when you think about the state of our world, our country, our community, maybe even your own life. I think it's understandable. When our focus is on the world around us or even ourselves, we can sometimes tend towards hopelessness. In fact, this is the very thing that Psalm 130 addresses. It's a prayer sung by the Jewish pilgrims as they made their ways, as they made their way from their lives with their difficulties and troubles and hardships up the hill towards the temple. Up that hill towards the Holy of Holies, where God's presence was thought to rest at that time. They sang it as they lifted their eyes from the hopelessness they were in to the place where their hope was found. And I think there are three key things that this psalm teaches us about hope. On our own, we're hopeless. But we can have hope because of who God is 
and we need to put our hope in him and him alone. This psalm begins in a a pretty hopeless place. The psalmist is in the, the depths of despair. We're not totally sure why. He may be facing some sort of personal trial or serious problem, but unlike some of the other psalms, uh, no outward cause is mentioned, like an opposing army surrounding him or someone spreading rumors and lies and ruining his character, like we see in some of those other psalms. No, from what we see in verse 3, it seems that the problem this psalmist is facing is to do with personal sin. He has become convicted of some sin that he has committed or some serious, continuous sinfulness that's going on in his life. As fallen, sinful people, we are constantly acting against our holy and perfect God. As R.C. Sproul put it, we are constantly committing acts of cosmic treason against our King. Even those of us who have been redeemed through that finished work of Christ and are secure in Him are still connected to and affected by this sinful world. And like the psalmist, we need to be careful. Careful to be aware of the sin in our own lives. You see, there's a danger. There's a danger that if we let sin and sinful behaviors or habits grow roots down into our lives, our conscience can become numb and our hearts will become increasingly hardened to it. And then we can lose our saltiness, our effectiveness for the kingdom of God. So how's your heart this morning? Are there sins in your life that you're allowing to go unchecked, unchallenged? Has it got to the stage where even though you know something you're doing in public, in private, is wrong, it stopped bothering you? Or even though you know what God's Word really says about it, you've kind of reasoned it out in your head to convince yourself it's, it's okay? Is your heart becoming hard to sin? Maybe today we need to sit and spend a little bit of time thinking about this. And if you can't think of of anything, ask God through his Holy Spirit that he would reveal to you areas of your life where you're struggling with sin. Because we all have them. Let's ask that God will challenge us, will soften our hearts, will give us the strength to confess and to repent, to turn and run from the things that we do, seen or unseen, which go against God's desire for us to be holy and blameless. We see in this psalm that the psalmist's heart was not hardened to his sin, or at least at some point before he comes to write this psalm, God has broken his hard heart. And now he comes crying out to God for mercy. He wholeheartedly repents. He turns to the one that he has wronged and the only one who can do something about it. In verses three and four, we see this this reflection of, of who we are and who God is. How hopeless we are in saving ourselves, but how immeasurably hopeful we can be because of who God is. Verse 3 reminds us that we are sinful. 
And if even one of our most minor offenses was held against us, we would be utterly lost. As Paul puts it in in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The psalm writer, he, he recognizes who God is, that God is holy, that he is perfect, that he cannot have sin in his holy presence. It cuts us off from him totally. No one in our sinful state can hope to stand before a holy and righteous God. You see, every other religion in the world, every other philosophy either says that we're good enough or that we can become good enough to get to God. But Christianity tells us the truth, the truth that we all know. In ourselves, there is no hope. We need a rescuer. We need a redeemer. And thankfully, verse 3 is not where the psalmist ends. He also recognizes that this, this perfect, holy, ultimately powerful God who is constantly being treated with contempt by his creations is willing to show forgiveness. The psalmist says, and therefore he is to be feared. It's a bit of a strange line, isn't it? You see, God is not to be feared because of his great power or because of his holiness or perfect justice. Those things, in fact, should bring us comfort. That God is in charge. That he is all-powerful. That he is sovereign. He's in control. He's in control over it all. Now, the reason, according to the psalmist, that we should fear the Lord which means to to respect, to be in reverence of, to be in awe of. The reason that we should fear the Lord is that a being of such immense might and power would be willing to forgive us, would be willing to forgive our our constant disobedience, those acts of, of cosmic treason against the very one who made us and sustains us. What an amazing God we have. I wonder though, do our lives reflect that forgiveness? Do we live out that hope that we have in him? In our actions, in our attitudes towards others? I was reading the the, the parable of the unforgiving servant um, from Matthew 18 recently don't know if you remember it. It's the one where after being begged for mercy, the king forgives a servant an almost impossible debt, just to find later that that same servant has refused to forgive someone an almost insignificant debt. Realizing that the servant wasn't truly sorry or repentant, the king brings the full force of his judgment and justice down on that first servant. This mercy that we have received from God, it should change and shape the way we interact with everyone that we meet. How we show love and mercy and forgiveness to them. C.S. Lewis once wrote in an essay on forgiveness, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable 
because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. Are you living out the forgiveness that you've been shown in your relationships with your family, with your work colleagues, with other Christians who have let you down? Do you need to go and do that today? This week? To forgive as you have been forgiven? On our own, we're hopeless. We're dead in our sins and lost in the depths. But with God, we have a sure and certain hope. A hope based on the the incredible mercy and forgiveness of our God. A hope that if we have truly grasped it, we will want to share with others. We won't be able to stop ourselves. And in the remainder of this psalm, the writer goes on to do exactly that. To share more and more about how this hope affects his life and his appeal to others to grasp hold of this same hope. In verses five and six, we see the psalmist talking about how this all affects his day-to-day life. How he puts his hope in the Lord and in his timing. So often when things go wrong in our lives, we we just become totally self-reliant, don't we? Determined to fix our own problems, to sort out the issues on our own. When we encounter problems and difficulties in work, when there's a crisis in our family, at exam times, when assignments are due, work deadlines, when we're feeling stressed and under pressure, that's when so often our, our Bible reading and study and prayer lives, they go out the window. And we are so tempted to just focus on ourselves rather than on our relationship with God. It's understandable. The world we live in where, where everything is instant, everything needs to be done 10 minutes ago, very often we've been through something and out the other side before we even think, I should really have prayed about that. Sometimes it's, it's only when we've exhausted every other option and we're at our wit's end that we finally come to God in a real and meaningful way about whatever it is that we're facing. One place we see this is in the life of, of Abraham. Abraham is is promised a a child by God, but 10 years go by, no child. He and Sarah become sick of waiting. They take matters into their own hands. And Abraham Abraham has a child with his maidservant, Hagar. Ishmael, the child, becomes the leader of a great nation, a nation who caused no end of problems for God's people throughout all history all because Abraham stopped putting his hope in God and his promises and instead put his hope in himself to solve what he saw as the problem. And as we've already heard this morning, putting our hope in ourselves alone is hopeless. Verses five and six, they show us what to do instead. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits And in his word, I put my hope. My soul waits for the Lord. More than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. 
to wait on the Lord is not a passive thing. It's not a sit back and put your feet up and wait to be, to be called up to service. It's an active thing. It's more like waiting tables in a restaurant than waiting in a doctor's surgery. It's engaging expectantly with God. It's building that relationship. It's an active thing. It's a doing thing. We see this in verse 5 when, when waiting on the Lord involves putting our hope in His Word, in His promises, in His redemptive plan revealed to us from Genesis to Revelation. Do you trust in God's provision? In His timing? In times of need, are you quick like I am to try and solve your problems in your own strength? Or do you turn to God's promises contained in his word, in his word that gives life? Do you lift your problems, your issues, your fears, your worries before him? Our merciful and mighty God. It's not easy. It's not easy to wait on the Lord's provision and timing sometimes. The psalmist recognizes this when he uses that, that analogy of the watchman waiting for the morning. You can just imagine it, can't you? A watchman on the walls of Jerusalem. Hostile groups, hostile nations all around. No street lamps, no floodlights, just intense darkness and cold. An attack could come at any moment. Every little noise out in the blackness putting them on edge. I'm sure some of those nights waiting for the dawn to come seemed endless. And some of the trials and the temptations that we face in this life, they can be like that too. Following God, it doesn't guarantee us an easy life. In fact, we're told and shown numerous times in the Bible that it won't be. As Christians, we live in this fallen world. We're just pilgrims passing through. This world in its current state is not our home. And in it, we may face all kinds of trials and difficulties, just like those watchmen on the walls. But no matter how cold and dark and scary it gets, we know the dawn is coming. Perhaps not in the difficulties that we face in this life, but absolutely in the eternal life to come. We know that God will see us through. Our hope is in Christ, and he has faced down the darkness on the cross, and three days later, dawn came and the sun rose, fulfilling the promises of this psalm and showing us that our hope is well-founded. Verses seven and eight, they, they point forward to this hope in Christ through his life, death, and resurrection. And is this beautiful appeal to others to share in the hope that the psalmist has found? We see in verse seven that we can trust in this hope in Christ because God's love is unfailing. It is steadfast, unchangeable, sure. My old Bible class leader, when I was growing up, used to always say, there is nothing you can do to make God love you any more 
And there is nothing you can do to make God love you any less. He loves you, and there's nothing you can do about it. I've since found out that she stole that from Philip Yancey um, and claimed it as her own. But it's fine, because God doesn't love her any less. Um, There is nothing you can do to make God love you any more. There's nothing you can do to make God love you any less. God loves you, and there's nothing you can do about it. We see that prophetically summed up in verse 8, when it says that he himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. This verse points forward to the, the greatest act of love God ever performed by coming down to this earth himself to show us how to live, to suffer and to die in order to lift us out of the depths, to redeem the very people living in rebellion against him, to a restored relationship with him through that finished work of Christ. I wonder, have you accepted that hope? That hope that Christ offers you this morning? Do you see your need for the mercy of God? That without it, you'll be lost in the depths, dead because of your sin? That life without God is a life without hope, a life with no real life in it? Have you come to realize that that real life, true life, comes only from the source of life, from God himself? Anything else, it might look like life, it might seem good for a while, but ultimately it will leave you broken, lost, and dead. We've seen today, it doesn't matter what you've done. With Christ, there is forgiveness. Jesus died for you to pay the price for your sin. So put your hope in him today. He loves you more than you could ever imagine. And he wants to lift you out of the depths and restore your soul. He wants to bring you to life. So cry out to him today. He will hear your voice and he will run to you, arms open, full of love and forgiveness. Psalm 130 was once described as the little gospel. Tells us that in ourselves, there is and our own merit, we are hopeless because of our sin. But we can be hopeful in the Lord because with him, there is sure hope of forgiveness. With him, there is hope in the promises of his word. With him, there is hope in his unfailing love. And with him, there is hope of our redemption because of what Christ has done for us. We know that our hope is not found in the things of this world, things that so often leave us feeling hopeless. But our hope is in Christ alone. So how will you show that hope and share that hope in the lives of others this week and on into 2019.